The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you seeking more energy and ready to have more healings and revealings in your life? Then you've tuned into the right program. For the next hour, listen in as Reverend Temple Hayes, spiritual leader of First Unity at Unity Campus in St. Petersburg, Florida, shares with you tools you can use to transform your life. She will guide you on a journey to create a life that is intentional and dynamic. Now, here's your host, Reverend Temple Hayes. And welcome, everyone, and thank you for being on our show today. I have the good fortune of talking with uh, Reverend Edie Weinstein. She is, um, well, an example of a mover and shaker. And like I refer to often uh, on the show, an individual that through her long her life experiences is able to offer a lot of tools rather than rules and she has been published in notable magazines um she has been featured on many shows edie welcome and thank you for being here on the intentional spirit how did you become an intentional spirit Wow. First of all, thank you for inviting me to come play. This is one yes. of my favorite things to do. <laughs> so an intentional spirit. I think like all of us, I was born into um, a world that I probably didn't understand, uh, you know, at birth. My, my contention is when you look at a baby, uh, you know, they, they know stuff. And by the time they're old enough to communicate so that adults can understand them, they've forgotten everything. So... I became an intentional spirit by practice. Um, I grew up in a family that had a lot of love, a lot of nurturing. Um, they encouraged curiosity. So by the time I was in college, I was already immersed in spirit soup, I guess if you want to call it that. I was raised in a Jewish family, went to Hebrew school, um, and in college started studying other traditions as well. So I realized that I had a choice about how I connected with the God of my understanding. So I think that was part of it, was that I, I said, okay, this is what I want for my life. This is what feels good. This is what nourishes me in body, mind, and spirit. And I had a lot of wonderful teachers. Before the show, we were talking about um, Alan Cohen, who was one of my, my first teachers. We met in 1979, way back when he was just getting started. And he's been a good example of, of living intentionally. Um, there are other people, and I mentioned Karen Drucker. Whenever I think of Alan, I always think of Karen, that, you know, that they're, they seem to go hand in hand. Another friend, Scott Calixtine Grace, um, was a teacher of, of intentionality. Uh, the Dalai Lama, Ram Dass. Um, so I, I see people as examples of how to live intentionally with, you know, heart forward. So that was part of it. And it's, an, it's I'm a work in progress, like you and on all your listeners. It's an evolution. Mm-hmm. What would you say has been um, one of the most significant events of your life, and, and why would you say that? Well, I've had a lot of them. The first one was when I was four years old. My grandmother died. Um, my maternal grandmother was like a third parent. Now, I wasn't consciously aware of the impact at the time, but it shaped a lot of my life. Um, so, I, you know, she's kind of been a guardian spirit for me. The next one... Um, I'm trying to think what came after that. Um, my husband died in 1998. Um, he had been actually going to seminary at the time that he died. So when he died, I took his place in the class and was ordained 
in you know instead um, graduated from the new seminary in 1999 um, that was a pivotal so they're pivotal events I guess is how I would look at it that mm-hmm. was another one so his illness and his subsequent death um, starting a magazine before that 10 years before that called Visions Holistic Health and Wellness in fact Alan was on our first cover um, so that was a pivotal event and it launched me into becoming a freelance journalist and then you know Michael's death and then um, after that, um, 20 years later, I got to interview the Dalai Lama. That was a pivotal event. Um, and then most recently, in June, I had a heart attack. Uh, 55 years old, didn't expect it, came totally out of the blue. However, as a result of that, I've done a lot of life review, you know, something that people usually do at the end of their lives. Now, I'm not planning on, on leaving the building anytime soon. Right. This was an opportunity to take a look and see how I lived. And the way that I lived was um, putting my heart out there all the time, um, holding other people's hearts sacred, but not holding my own sacred. And... This was a huge wake-up call about taking better care of myself physically. Um, I was working 12-hour days doing drug and alcohol counseling, then coming home and writing. I'm a journalist for the Huffington Post, Elephant Journal, Wisdom Magazine, um, what else, Good Men Project, BeliefNet. So I was coming home and writing till midnight and then getting up at 6 or so in the morning, so getting working twice as many hours a day as I was sleeping. And eventually my body said, that's it. We're, you know, we're going on strike, <laughs> and it did. So I wow. joke that I've gone from being Wonder Woman to being the Bionic Woman because I have a stent in my heart now. Um, so that was a huge wake-up call. And because I'm learning to slow down, to take actually take naps now, and I never did that before. I work from home as a full-time writer. Um, you know, I see a few clients uh, a week still, but um, nowhere near the schedule I had before. So that was a huge awakening for me, big pivotal event. Well, what's huge to me with your modeling is that with these defining moments in your life, you're actually doing something about them. Mm-hmm. I mean, where a lot of times people will have these defining moments and they either go to victimhood or they, you know, why me? I don't understand why this happened. Not letting it be a teachable moment, you know, or blaming external everything else and not taking any kind of responsibility so it, it sounds like that you have kind of received energy from every one of these circumstances and, and yeah. taken it to be kind of um, a development of you. And that's huge. That, yeah, that's really absolutely. huge. And, and, yeah. I mean, sometimes I'm ultra responsible and they take too much responsibility. But I know that there were genetic factors. My mom had congestive heart failure, which is what she died from. My sister had two heart attacks last year. I was working myself into a heart attack. But the biggest part was the spiritual and emotional connection because I would say, you know, God and I have, sometimes I call them dialogues, sometimes I call them monologues when I realize that God and I are one. Uh, you know, I call it God, God is all that is. And I'd have these conversations, and a lot of it was a lack of trust. I was so worried about not being able to support myself that I forgot that I'm not the one supporting me. And what I would say as by way of affirmation, and this might be a cool thing for your listeners, is, you know, um, God is my employer and the salary and benefits are out of this world. I started using that as a, a mantra. Say and, that again. Say that okay, again. God, That's neat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, God, what did I say? God is my employer and the salary and benefits are out of this world. Wow. Um, because I work That's for God. Uh-huh. You know, and it's not grandiose. I, I've been in the psychiatric field for, I don't know, 25, you know, 30 years, and that's not grandiose to say I work for God. We all work for God, if, you know, if that's what you believe. I don't, I don't you know, I, as a minister, I say I don't tell anybody what to believe spiritually. It's an inside job. But I work you know, for God. Clearly, you work for God. Um, and my needs are always taken care of. But I was so terrified that they wouldn't be, that I wouldn't turn down any work, even if it, you know, suck the life out of me, literally. Um, so I've learned to trust. Um, one of my other motivators was a couple of years ago, I saw Lisa Nichols speak. Do you know who she is? Um, she was in The Secret. Um, yes, She's a transformational speaker. Yes, uh-huh. Yeah. 
she's she's the one that says, you know, when she she punctuates everything with yes, yes, you know, like real excited, yes, yes. So I asked her this this question. She said, you know, we could ask her anything we wanted. And I said, you know, I've been in this field for so many years, and the proverbial, you know, an Oprah still hasn't called. And she says, you want to know the answer? You really want to know the answer? And I said, sure. And she said, attract, don't pursue. Stop driving yourself bonkers. Be of service. Just keep putting your work out there, and then let it go. Mm-hmm. And a, a friend who's also a well-known writer had said this to me too. He said, "Stop trying to get attention. Just do what you do, and it'll it'll come to you." And my first reaction was to blow raspberries and think, "Oh, what do you know?" But he he was right because as soon as I did that, as soon as I surrendered, all kinds of opportunities, including my my full-time writing from home job, came to me two weeks before the heart attack. The opportunity arose to work from home. And it's been brilliant and blissful and, and all, you know, all of that. So I'm, I'm saying, folks, no matter how dark or dismal or, or um, frustrating it is to, you know, to feel like you're living your dreams, trust, put it out, plant the seeds, you know, do the legwork, but then surrender for me was the hardest part. Doing what I call the nesty plunge, you know, where you kind of remember the commercials from the, I guess, the 70s, you know, where the person would fall back into the pool. Yeah, so I do the nest tea plunge every day, and God says, have I ever dropped you? Has anything ever not turned out better than you with your vivid imagination could ever have conjured up in your mind? And it's always there. That support is always, always there. It's never not. <laughs> that is so cool. And I love what you're saying because I, I, it's easy to get hooked in, in that. Um, mm-hmm. And early in my in my ministry, I I did that, um, and not the easiest thing sometimes for you to admit out loud, you know. But mm-hmm. I would be like um, doing everything, and you know, giving everything, and sober, and you know, feeling like I was doing a good job as best I could, modeling, and something yeah. would happen to somebody else, some other colleague that didn't even seem to care, and I would go. Huh, well, when's it going to happen to me? Not so much that it shouldn't have happened to them, of course, but like, oh, when's it going to happen to me? You know? <laughs> and, uh, but once I let that go, um, I could really see what was happening with me. And I, yeah. I, like you're saying, just having that epiphany of, of just serve and not have an agenda, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's, uh, much more fulfilling and rewarding, isn't it? <laughs> Oh yeah. Well, it's it you know it's funny you mentioned that because an article that I wrote just came out in Wisdom magazine online. Um, it's uh, wisdom hyphen magazine dot com or dot org, and I call it the Green Eyed Monster. Um, mm. You know the jealousy thing. Uh, although I differentiate between jealousy and envy. You know, jealousy for me is somebody else has what I want and it's going to run out. There won't be enough for me. Envy is I'll you know like the line from when Harry met Sally. I'll have what she's having. Yes, um, yes. And thinking, oh, how come I don't have it yet? When somebody <laughs> in my life, you know, and and I believe in being cheerleaders for each other. Um, women in particular seem to have a hard time with this. That although more and more women are supporting each other, uh, you know, when somebody in my life who is, um, you know, who I feel is equally talented and equally, you know, all that has something happen that I want, and thinking, oh, you know, how come she gets that and I don't get that? I know, and as you said. You, you are where you are, and you've got your level of success, and it's no less valuable than anybody else's, that you are where you are for whatever reason you are. And, I mean, do you ever look back at your life and say, holy smokes, that woman has done a lot. She's accomplished a lot. Yes, I really, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and it's always a comfort for me whenever I feel like I'm not enough because most of us, and I hate these words suffer, but most of us struggle with or have a challenge with the not enoughness. You know, I'll never do enough. I'll have, I'll never be enough. I'll never have enough. It's that incessant monkey mind chatter that eats away at us and like, you know, it's, it's really uncomfortable. But then I look at it and I say, you know, make a list of all the things that you've accomplished from the, you know, the day you started taking your first steps. You know, you learn to walk, you learn to tie your shoes, you learn to feed yourself, you learn to ride a bike, drive a car. Maybe you graduated high school, maybe you graduated college, maybe, you know, you 
been in relationships or had to, all the things that you've done from the time you were a little kid and think, look at all that I've accomplished. And it's, you know, in the midst of feeling like you're not enough, I encourage your listeners to do that, to make a list of all the things that they've done in their lives. And then, you know, fast forward, what are the things that in 10 years you want to be able to look back and say, oh, this is what I did in the interceding 10 years. And just start doing them. Don't wait. You know, um, yesterday I had this amazing experience. Um, you know who Judy Collins is, right? Yes. She's a uh-huh. singer somewhere. Okay. Yeah. She's now on, on tour talking about a, a book that she wrote. Um, and I actually have it here. I've got to see if I can find it. But it's about her own addiction recovery. She's been sober 36 years, and she lost her son 20-some years ago from suicide. Um, the book is called Sanity and Grace, A Journey of Suicide, Survival, and Strength. And she was speaking at a, um, a fundraiser for a local community mental health center in my area called Penn Foundation. And she was she started out the evening, if you can imagine this, this beautiful, elegant, you know, white hair now um, woman, um, started out the evening singing both sides now, you know, bows and flows of angel hair. I love that song, yes. Started out and ended singing Amazing Grace. Have you, have you ever heard Judy Collins sing Amazing Grace? No. Is Her, it Amazing look Grace? Look it up on, on YouTube. <laughs> Phenomenal. But if you can no imagine Amazing Grace with more than a thousand people in this huge auditorium singing this song. That's how the evening ended. And in between, she talked about her history, um, the alcoholism, the addiction, her son's addiction, her son's suicide. And I wanted to, as a journalist, interview her, but there wasn't an opportunity to do that because, you know, she had already had her interviews booked and I found out about the event a day or so earlier. And I said, but I want to meet her. I am determined to meet her. Now, they had a silent auction, and one of the prizes, one of the things they were auctioning off was two of her CDs, an autographed copy of the book, a poster, and a photo opportunity with with Judy Collins. And I looked at it and I said, do I really want to put the money to it? And I said, you know what? You've lived your entire life worrying about, can I afford this? Is this something that I get to do, that I'm allowed to do? And I said, you know what? I'm doing it. I won. <laughs> I put a bid in, and I won. Um, and so I got to wow. meet her, and I got to do the photo op. And I thought, this is how I want to live my life. And I don't live frivolously. I don't, you know, I'm not spending frivolously. But it was a donation for a good cause, because I, I totally support what this agency does, Um and, you know, getting to meet this amazing woman and reading the book and having her CDs and, how you know, and autographs. I mean, some of them is like, vintage stuff. And that's what I encourage people to do. And it doesn't have to cost money to live like that. If there's something you want to do and you're holding yourself back saying, I don't deserve or I don't get to or it's not okay if I do, um, you know, ask yourself, what if you had a heart attack tomorrow and you didn't make it? Fifty percent of the people, the, the guy that runs my cardiac rehab program that I'm in said, you know, 50 percent of the people die from their first heart attack. I beat the odds. <laughs> so uh, and, and now I'm looking at life so differently. Um, you know, I'm not the woman that I was three months ago. You know, I've, I've just turned everything totally upside down. I lie on my couch sometimes and stare up at the ceiling fan. I never did that before because it wasn't productive. Yeah. You know, I wasn't earning my keep. <laughs> so, I'm, you know, I'm living like that now and it feels so good. I'll tell you something else that's a whole lot of fun. If you haven't discovered it, it's doing puzzles on an iPad. Have you discovered that one yet? <laughs> no, puzzle, uh-uh. uh-uh. Oh, my gosh, it's been one of my most favorite discoveries is putting together puzzles on an iPad. It is so huh. great, and you can even upload your own photographs and make them wow. puzzles. Cool. So it's been yeah. great, and, you know, things you're grieving, like I I lost a couple of my Yorkies. Uh, they they died. Died after 14 years of this love uh, romantic relationship and I have some of their photos uploaded and I do their puzzles and it's just healing it's it's pretty amazing well we're enjoying talking today with um, Edie Weinstein and her life and how all the pieces of her puzzle have come together in the course of her life and I'm Temple Hayes and I want to thank all of you for your continuing contributions to Unity Online Radio we because of you, we are able really to reach uh, near and far across the globe with these powerful messages from so many of our, our shows and so many of our guests like Edie. We'll be right back after this short break. 
Unity Online Radio brings you inspiring programs on a variety of spiritual topics. Giving to the network is now easier than ever. Simply text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone. You can make a one-time or recurring donation. Your gifts help us offer enriching spiritual programs that reach listeners around the world. Text Unity Radio to 72727. Thank you for your support. You have a coach in your corner, a life coach that is. Like a coach in sports, a life coach can help you set clear goals and develop the confidence and tools you need to achieve them. Join certified life coach Carla McClellan Tuesdays at 3 p.m. for Vibrant Living on Unity Online Radio. Each week, Coach Carla and her guests will share strategies and solutions designed to help make your life more focused, more meaningful, and more vibrant. Do you have a specific issue or topic you'd like to discuss with Coach Carla? Call in toll-free Tuesdays at 3 p.m. during Vibrant Living, Life Coaching with Carla. Spirit of Recovery is the place where spirituality and recovery meet where we support your spiritual growth. Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D., interviews down-to-earth guests who share with you how they keep going and growing in recovery. Spirit of Recovery is the place to get practical tips and join in lively discussions on topics that matter to recovering people. This program welcomes everyone who wants to know more about recovery. Join Anna and her guests live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central Time on Spirit of Recovery where we talk about what keeps you growing. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for listening to The Intentional Spirit, Seeing and Being with Rev. Temple Hayes. If you have a question or comment about today's discussion, you can email us at the intentional spirit at unityonlineradio.org. Now, here is your host, Reverend Temple Hayes. And thank you, everyone, for being with us. And if you're just joining in, I have the good pleasure today of talking with uh, Reverend Edie Weinstein, and her website is liveinjoy.org. She has done so much for uh, our positive messages out in the world that are not only positive uh, in a way of impactful, but yet offer tools in which people can live. So, um, Edie, in looking at your website and, and reading up on you before uh, our show today, I also uh, love the title of your of your book, The Bliss Mistress Guide to Transforming the Ordinary into the or- Extraordinary. We like that anyway. How do we go from ordinary to extraordinary? So um, how did the book come about? And um, why do you call yourself a bliss mistress? Okay, well, they both kind of go hand in hand. I've always loved the work of Joseph Campbell, who's famous for the quote, follow your bliss. Mm-hmm. And I realized that following your bliss is a pretty cool thing, but it still means, like, casting your line out for fishing, um, you know, for something that's outside of you. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to for people to BYOB, be your own bliss. So I started teaching a workshop by that name, and I was walking into one of the you know, the workshops where I was going to teach that, and one of the women said, oh, you're the bliss master. You're going to teach us how to you know, live blissfully. And I taught the workshop, and when I came home, I was talking to a friend on the phone, and he says, oh, no, not bliss master, bliss mistress. And you know when you know someone well, you can see the twinkle in their eye, even though they're cross-country? Right. Um, well, I, I did that. And he says, but if you're going to call yourself Bliss Mistress, you better be living it. So I want to hear what you're doing to live your bliss. 
And I realized that, you know, my, my calling at the time was to teach people, and still is to some extent, how to be the mistress or master of their own bliss. Now, bliss for some people may be skydiving or maybe deep sea diving or it might be sitting, lying on the couch, staring at the ceiling fan, like we talked about, or doing this, this is my bliss, is getting to talk to you and, and to your listeners. So you get to decide, you're the arbiter of what's blissful for you. So for years, like a lot of people, I wanted to write a book, but I was feeling really intimidated by it because I thought, okay, I'm a journalist, I can write articles on deadline, but the idea of writing a book was daunting. And then there was a fear of what I call a funny-looking baby syndrome where, you know, your book is your baby, and when you put it out there in the world, you know, it's sort of like, you know, pushing a baby in a stroller and people look at it and think, oh, what a funny-looking baby, but they don't want to say it. So I thought, what if my book is a funny-looking baby and people don't really like it and they don't know how to tell me, you know, so I held back. And then a friend of mine um, who's an author as well, Jim Donovan, said, you know, this book is not doing anybody any good in your head. Get it out there. Publish the book. So um, that was a catalyst. And then my mom, um, who passed in 2010, was on hospice. And her last six months of her life, I got to be with her in Florida seven times. I got to go down there and visit her. And... I would, you know, sit by her bedside and type, you know, write the book. And she said, I want, you need to finish this book because I want to read it. And I said, then you're going to have to live a whole lot longer because it's not done. But I finished it in honor of her, and the last two chapters were, were about our hospice journey and then afterward. So that got me to finish the book. And it's available on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. Um, you can get it through my website, liveinjoy.org. And there are 20, or 30, I think 30 chapters, and each of them could be standalone articles, which is actually how I wrote it. A friend of mine had said, why don't you just write each chapter as if it's an article, and then when you have enough chapters, you have a book. So I narrowed it down from 60 to 30. And then the final chapter was my interview with the Dalai Lama. I didn't, did I say that was a, yeah, that was a pivotal, pivotal event in my life. That was, I got that would do it. Yeah. How that did was, that yeah. happen? So, is there a story that, behind that? Is there a story yeah, behind that? Yeah, and that's in the book, too, and I'll, and I'll share that with you in a moment, but that was the 30th chapter. So wow. that's how the, the book is, is available. And I live my bliss every day. The things that I told you about since the heart attack, that I have felt more bliss-filled since then. You know, one of those thank God I experiences. Like, I never wish a heart attack on anybody, but thank God it happened, because if it hadn't, I'd still be working my crazy schedule, and I might not have survived the heart attack. Right. So, paradoxically, it slowed me down enough so that I didn't have a fatal heart attack. Um, so that was part of it. The other thing is that I've become much more genuine. Um, I like to say now that even the bliss mistress gets the blues sometimes. No, it's not depression. It's just a, like a, you know, okay, um, now what am I going to do with this? The other thing that I wanted to tie in is another B word that we discussed beforehand, um, and it's a word that's used to disparage women, um, and what I realized after talking to, I have a, a dear friend and mentor, her name is Yvonne Kay, and she's been a, a big part of my life for the last 25 or so years. At breakfast a couple weeks ago, she said, you know, I'm proud to be that, and she used the B word, um, and she used the acronym, uh, you know, a woman who is being in total charge of herself. So we're spelling the word out without actually saying it. So imagine if you were a woman who is being in total charge of herself, people might not like that very much. They, you know, they want you to do what they want you to do. And what I've learned is that it's totally acceptable for me to be that. So I wrote an article for the Huffington Post a couple of days ago saying why I'm proud to be the B word. Um, and they liked it so much that they picked it up on HuffPo Live. So I got to be on that yesterday. So if you want to watch it, you would just go to, you know, Edie Weinstein, why I'm proud to be, a, and then the word is spelled out. <laughs> right. So that rhymes so with witch. That starts with a what B. That rhymes with witch, yeah. Um, yes. But, it, yeah, but it was so much fun. And I was nervous, believe it or not, you know, beforehand. It was only like a four-minute segment, but it was so much fun to be able to declare that it's okay to say no. It's okay to make your own rules. And it doesn't mean being mean or hurtful or nasty or putting anybody down. And, how, you know, and, and what I said in the article is having said that, it's not, I don't believe in calling people names. 
you know, but if people are going to think that about me or you or anybody, if you stand your ground, then you might as well claim it and reframe it. You know, claim that that role and reframe it so that it feels better for you. Um, So that's how I'm living now, too. Not that I don't care what people think, but I was such a codependent, you know, caregiver who, as my husband was fond of saying, would bend over backwards to please people. Um, That wasn't living genuinely, and it didn't let people get to know me. And I, you know, I kept them, you know, at a distance because of that. So, you know, being a minister, being a spiritual being doesn't mean um, having to be saintly. I mean, mm-hmm. even the saints said, you know, even, even Mother Teresa wasn't always Mother Teresa. So You're so uh, right. That, I mean, that's um, a little add-in with that of just a personal experience is when I um, came into this role, um, having been doing ministry for, you know, 20 five plus years now when i came into this role that was already a title called senior minister i i went with that because that was the paradigm that's what the title was but um i changed that to a spiritual leader because i i didn't resonate with the word senior minister it didn't have anything to do with age because you know there's senior ministers that are 30 or whatever but it was more about the ability to lead by spirit that is not always pleasant for people and um and knowing that i have a different kind of work to do it and i can be warm and cuddly and all that but there's times in order to be a teacher you have to be stern you have to tell the truth and you have to be direct and a lot of times people don't like that you know what i mean um and so for me just changing those words um it just, it, everything started making sense to me in a different way because um, it was much more authentic for me, uh, knowing that I would like, that I lead by spirit and that being a leader isn't easy. You know, being a leader, uh, leading a tribe isn't always fluffy. You know, you if, if we're just keeping these positive thoughts and this metaphysical uh, life just at a place that we don't want to ever offend anybody, if we don't ever want anyone to be upset with us, I, I don't really feel like we're, we're being that great of a teacher. Um, my, I know that because I changed a lot in the midst of my teachers, you know, when I was in ministerial school, and it wasn't because they always said what I wanted to hear. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They oh, were... Absolutely. Pretty candid sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I call it, you know, a loving kick in the tush. Sometimes you need that. Um, if I had mentioned Yvonne Kay, who's also an interfaith minister. She was also ordained through the New Seminary. And she used to say to me back in the 1980s, 90s, early 90s, she'd say, discipline is freedom. And I said, what are you talking about, woman? Discipline is freedom. I said, I'm a free spirit. I don't need all this. You know, she says, no. When you have discipline, when you have structure in your life, then you can be as free-spirited as you want, but you need a container to put it in. And those words have stayed with me the entire time of our friendship. And she's now, a, you know, you wouldn't know what to look at her. She's 81 years old, and she's just vibrant and energetic and beautiful and um, just, you know, such a role model for me for saging, not just aging. And I think I want to be like her when I grow up, you know, and, I'm, and I've got a ways to go before I'm there, but before I grow up and before I'm 81. But, um, you know, I look at powerful men and women who have been good role models for me for leadership. And you first got to be able to lead yourself. Because I think a po- you know a powerful leader is somebody that can take charge of themselves, and as you mentioned, be responsible for what they do to bring about the lives that they want before they can ever lead anybody else. You know, leading by example. Um, so I've learned how to do that, and by no means have I mastered anything in my life. I'm I'm learning all the time. I'm a work in progress, and I talk about some of what I do as being authentic, as revealing the real. You know, the you know the, um, have you ever are you familiar with Debbie Ford's work with um, the shadow? 
the shadow Um, effect. I'm certainly familiar with the shadow, but elaborate in the point you're making. Talk to us. Sure. Well, Debbie Ford was a spiritual teacher who died in 2013. She was just amazing. And she wrote a book called The Dark Side of the Light Chasers. And I actually talk about her in the, you know, in the article that I wrote for Huffington Post about how um, we all have our shadow sides. And she made a movie before she died with Deepak Chopra, and I'm trying to think who else was in it, about how we try to keep our shadows hidden um, because we don't. We think people won't like us if they know. And shadow doesn't mean evil. It just means our fears and the things that we keep other people from knowing, our vulnerabilities. And it's when we reveal them that people can come closer. I was so terrified of people knowing that I felt insecure or jealous or scared or sometimes I had self-doubts that I wanted to come across as being supremely self-confident, have it all together, you know, everybody's rock, um, a safe place to land, that if they knew that I didn't always have it together and I wasn't always confident that they'd run screaming, you know. And as a result of that, people have said, no, we feel closer to you because you've shown us who you really are. You know, that believe it or not, there are people that have said that they were afraid to approach me, not because I'm terribly, um, what's the word, um, not unapproachable, but just um, intimidating, but they felt nervous about it. And now that that facade is gone, the mask, they, you know, the always smiling mask is gone, that I can be real and people get closer. It's sort of like, did you ever um, read The Velveteen Rabbit? Do you know that story? About how toys Tell it to real? our listener, because even though I have, maybe a lot of our listeners have not. Yeah, um, Velveteen Rabbit, I don't know who wrote it, but um, it's kind of a dialogue between this bunny, you know, stuffed bunny rabbit and another critter, critter called the skin horse. And the, the horse is telling him, telling the rabbit about how, you know, when your, your fur is all loved off and your eyes, your button eyes are hanging off, that you become real to a child. And that's how I feel. But I was so scared of people seeing the fur loved off and the button eyes falling off. That I pretended that everything was pretty and and nice and and the irony I was joking about this the Huffington Post thing was I've been a good girl and nice and I, I'm a clown also professionally and my clown is a fairy named Feather and she's all glittery and you know and fluffy and and all that and I said and it was when I became that B word when I was willing to claim that B word that I'm getting the attention that I wanted from being the nice girl you know, not making waves. So play with the idea of who you really are, that who you're afraid to show the world that you really are, and see what happens. You know, when you take off the mask, ask yourself, and again, for you and for the listeners, ask yourself, who's underneath the mask? Like, what's the mask you show the world, and who's really under there? And what do you think will happen if you show the world who you really, truly are? And just, just watch what happens. It's magic. Absolutely magic. That's really powerful. And it sounds Thank like you. you're giving a number of these insights in your 30 chapters. Am I correct? Yeah, some of them are, are that. The, the article, or the, the chapters are basically what I call slice of life stories, or chicken soup for the soul genre is what I call it. Mm, and they're those. life experiences from, you know, from things that, I, that I've done. Um, and then at the end of each chapter are what I call bliss kisses um, that enable you to do like a dialogue, a, you know, an inquiry into some of these subjects. And then at the end are what I call bliss bites. I forget which, is, which I don't have the book sitting here with me, but which are bliss kisses and which are bliss bites, like the little nibbles of, of imagine chocolate. Chocolate's my drug of choice. So imagine <laughs> nibbling on chocolate and as, as kind of a, a nourishment for the soul, um, just different tidbits. And then, the, you know, then the Dalai Lama story is part, you know, the article is part of that as well. So, yeah, there, there are a lot of pointers in the books, a lot of practical kind of things. And I like taking the readers along with me on my adventures. So not that they're all terribly exciting adventures, but one of them is, is a chapter about, um, as I was turning 50 is when I, when I finished the book, uh, 50 things that I either have done in my life or want to do. So if anyone has a birthday coming up, um, make a list of... The, whatever number birthday is coming up. My 56 is coming up in a few weeks. So I'm going to do a you know, 56 list, things that I, 56 things that I want to do 
you know, like a bucket list. So that's one of the chapters. Um, one of them is called A Relationship with Chocolate, because I was mentioning chocolate. Um, one of them is um, called, oh, I'm trying to remember the name of it, um, the servant of the of the creation it was based on um, a, a talk that I heard Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, um, give about how those of us that are creative people think that that um, you know creativity serves us, but the reality is we're the servant of the creation. The muse speaks to us and tells us what to paint, what to draw, what to write, um, you know, what music to make, what dance to do, and how when we acknowledge that, we let the creativity come through us. So if you're a writer, let your writing write you. If you're a dancer, let the movement move you. So that's one of the chapters. Um, another one is based on the movie Under the Tuscan Sun. Um, have you ever seen that? Yes, what an excellent yeah. movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, one of my favorites and how the author talks about um, how um, when she moved to Italy, her friend who was a realtor talked about how there were train tracks laid between Austria and, I forget where, but it was through the Alps, Italy and Austria maybe. And the train tracks were laid even before there was a train scheduled to come through with the idea that eventually, someday, a train would pass through there. So when I teach people how to manifest, and I use the term mana, M-A-N-N-A, manifest, like mana from heaven, um, that um, they see that, that they have to lay the train tracks before the train can come through. And too many people say, well, I'll wait for the train to come through, then I'll put the tracks down. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> the train won't have anything to run on if there are no tracks there. So I encourage people to lay their own railroad tracks every day or lay a runway or whatever it is to accommodate your dreams. And there is no limit. You know, the train tracks can be as long as you want them to be. And the runway can be as long as you want it to be. There's no limit to what, you know, what you can imagine. I tell you, I love your fire. Thank you. And I love how you live in joy. And that is your website, liveenjoy.org, and couldn't be more perfect for you. For those of you that are uh, loving this message and these insights and you want more, please visit us at unitycampus.org or templehays.com. We'll be right back after this short break. Do you ask with childlike wonder, what is the nature of God? Who is Jesus? What is the Christ? How do we know what we know? When you ask these or other heart-centered questions about the non-physical, intangible aspects of life, you are, on some level, a student of metaphysics. New from Unity House and nearly five years in the making, Heart-Centered Metaphysics, a deeper look at Unity teachings, is now available. This is Paul Hasselbeck, author of this quintessential study guide. Enjoy a deeper exploration of universal spiritual principles and truths, whether you are just starting or have been seeking for years. Each thought-provoking chapter of Heart Center Metaphysics speaks to truth seekers like you, providing essential tools to help elevate your consciousness and create spiritual transformations in your outer life and circumstances. Order your copy today from the Unity Online Store at www.unity.org. Then click on Shop. The world is full of voices, advertising, television, politics, colleagues, family, and friends. All are too happy to tell us how to live. In all of that noise, it's easy to miss the one voice that matters, your own soul. What would happen if you could hear that voice? Imagine the clarity, confidence, and courage that would be yours and the life you could create. Join Janet Connor, best-selling author of Writing Down Your Soul, The Lotus and the Lily, and Your Soul Wants Five Things, as she and her guests explore how to hear the call of the soul and create the soul-directed life. Live Thursday at 1 p.m. Central, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Go inside to find.
We now return to The Intentional Spirit, Seeing and Being, with your host, Reverend Temple Hayes. And welcome back, everyone. Those of you that have been listening to us know that I'm talking to the on-fire Passion for Life optimistic we are talking today with the optimistic here on unity fm she's the mystic just bringing the wisdom <laughs> and we're just glad you're here edie and um you. that you truly are living in joy um we had alluded to in our first segment about one of your great dreams and accomplishments that had so much humility was having the opportunity to interview the Dalai Lama. Now, I imagine that's on a lot of people's um, vision board, uh, either to meet him. I mean, I think many people would just love the opportunity to meet him. And I'm not talking about where hundreds of thousands of people are and they saw the top of his head, but to literally meet him. But you actually got to interview him. How did that happen? What did you, well, that a, you know, we know we it's talk- a God job and all the ethereal yeah. stuff, but yeah. how did it occur? Well, you, we talked about intention. Um, I set the intention about 20 years earlier when my husband and I had started publishing Visions Magazine. And I got to interview a lot of movers and shakers, and I said, wouldn't it be cool someday to interview the Dalai Lama? Now, nobody in my life said, oh, that's never going to happen, stop dreaming. They all said, yeah, we believe that it's going to happen someday. And you mentioned vision boards. I had several of them with this picture on them. And somebody suggested, why don't you cut out a picture of yourself and put it next to his picture? So I did that. Um, and somebody else says, well, why don't you write questions as if you're going to be interviewing him tomorrow? And I did that. Um, In 2005, maybe, um, he came to speak at Rutgers in New Jersey, which was my alma mater, and there were like 20,000 people there. And I was asked to help promote it because I'm, as I mentioned, I'm a PR goddess. I'm a a networker. And I said, sure, I'll be glad to help spread the word. And by the way, is he giving interviews? No, he's not. Well, okay, I'll do it anyway. So I went there with my tape recorder and I walked around the stadium and I interviewed either people at random or people people that I knew there, and I said, you know, why are you here? What does this man mean to you? What brought you here? And then I forget where it got published, but I wrote an article about it. And while I was there, I got a postcard with his picture on it, and I I taped it to my dashboard, and it's been there ever since. So fast forward another two years, and I hear that he's coming both to Lehigh University, not too far from me, to do a week of teachings, and then speaking in Philadelphia at the Kimmel Center. And I said, they contacted me, different people brought him in, and they contacted me again and said, are you willing to, yes, I'm willing, and by the way, is he giving it, no, he's not giving interviews, all right, I'll do it. I said, all right, universe, what the heck is this about, you know, that you keep getting, it's almost like the um, the kids game, you know, you're getting warmer, you're getting warmer, like almost there, what are we doing here? So my ace in the hole was a dear friend named Greg Schultz, and I've written about this experience in the book, um, who became the event manager for the event the the part of it in Philadelphia, and he said, I can't guarantee it, but I'm thinking that they may be willing to do the interview. I've told them about you and and how your intention is pure and that you treat it with respect and you'll get the work out there. Fingers and toes crossed. So July, early July of 2008, I'm at an outdoor music festival with a, standing there with a couple of friends, and my phone rings, and it's Greg. He says, are you sitting down? I said, should I be? And he said, yes. Take off July 16th and 17th. You've got the interview. And by the way, you're the only journalist in the Philadelphia area that they've agreed to let interview him. I screamed into the phone. <laughs> One of the friends that was there was a photographer who snapped the picture, and I still have it. Um, and um, so they, you know, they, you know, I, I got off the phone. The next day, Greg calls me back and says, you still have the interview, but they want someone from the Philadelphia Inquirer to cover it as well. You know, I was doing it as a freelancer for a local paper. And now you don't think I said, nah, if I can't have it to myself, I don't want it, right? And I said, okay, no problem. So I knew of the man um, who was going to be there with me, David O'Reilly, um, was the religion columnist or religion editor for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And the day before, we met at um, a Buddhist temple where His Holiness was speaking to a group of, of um, people at the temple the day before the interview. And we looked at each other like these two conspiratorial little kids and looked at all the other journalists swarming around. And I said, they don't know that we're going to get to be with the, you know, the, 
His Holiness tomorrow. And we were like kind of rubbing our hands together with glee. And he says, I got a new suit for the occasion. I said, I got a new dress for the occasion. And um, so we were just really excited about it. And I said, you know, we each get 15 minutes with him. What about in the spirit of cooperation, we go in together and get a whole half hour? And we did. Um, so, you know, we, we walked into, they wouldn't even tell us where he was staying until the night before. And I said, you, they really think we're going to tell anybody where he's going to, you know, that we're going to do anything that would jeopardize this interview. So the next day we go to the Four Seasons in Philly, which is where he was staying. And we walk in through this cadre of, you know, police and secret service agents and we're ushered into the room. And I don't know if you're, you know, if you're, if any of your listeners have been in his presence, you know, more than just seeing the top of his head over, you know, a crowd of people, but he's very youthful looking. Um, he's now, I'm thinking, 79 this year, because he, he turned seven, yeah, I'm thinking that's when it was, yeah. He'd probably be 79 this year, but just dimples and very smooth skin and big smile. So as soon as I see him, I start tearing up, of course, and it felt incredibly surrealistic. And there's a ritual that you do when you meet him where you take a white silk scarf called a kata, K-A-T-A-H, and you fold it and hold it over your hands in prayer pose, you know, namaste, hand over your heart pose. He takes it, blesses it, and puts it around your shoulders. Well, when he did that, he hugged me. And I've only ever been hugged by two other people since then, that or one before, and that was Ram Das, and then the other is a dear friend of mine um, who just died. Um, her name is Delaine Lipka, and she ran a retreat center in New Jersey called Mount Eden, and she is sort of like a local ama, you know, that kind of hug. But I, you know, it was one of those feelings like, oh, I'll never wash again after that. And I, but I've washed several times since 2008, so you know, it's, that's not a problem. But it was that feeling of being bathed in love. And then he ushered us over to the couch, and we did the interviews. And you know, David's was more of a news story, and mine was more personal. And again, you'll be able to read about that in the magazine. And it's still what I call a holy shift moment. Um, you know that that I was able to move from I want this to happen, I'm wishing for it, I'm setting intention to Wow, it happened. And I still have to pinch myself sometimes to think, okay, I got to interview the Dalai Lama. You know, and, and how mm. cool is that? And I waited 20 years, and somebody, a dear friend, I don't remember who it was at the time, but somebody close to me at the time said, how do you know he didn't wait 20 years for you to interview him? And we're so good at at being overly humble, especially in the face of someone like that. All of us, I mean, he would be the first one to say that he's no, he calls himself a simple Buddhist monk. Mm-hmm. that he's no more lofty than you or me or anybody listening to this show, that he's just aware of it. And maybe that's what Jesus was saying, too, is that we are all tapped in. We are all of that divine energy. So that's when I, when I forget that, when I get spiritual amnesia. Do you ever get that? Do you ever get spiritual amnesia where you forget that you're divine, too? Oh, I think everybody does. Yeah. Yeah, so when I forget that, I remember what it felt like to be in the presence of somebody that maybe, maybe he gets spiritual amnesia too. I don't know. I didn't ask him that one. But, you know, I, when I'm in the presence of somebody that feels like they live it as much as I would like to, then I remember what that felt like. And I carry that with me into my daily life, especially when things feel sucky. Yeah, I think for me, one of the that one of the demarcations is what a lot of us face is, is do we focus on the 95% miracles or are the five things that we would like to make an adjustment about? You know, I, I don't think what's on the table for me is, am I God's beloved and am I co-creating with God? Um, if you had asked me that, you know, 20 years ago, I would go, God, yes, when things don't go well, I question that. That wouldn't be on the table, but it, it definitely would be. Uh, do I think about the, you know, six people that sometimes are upset and wish it could have been different, which is good to be responsible. But yet, do I, I think about that? You get to a place that you you can't really think about that anymore. You have to think about serving the greater good. You know what I mean? Which is kind of how yeah. we, you and I started out on um, the show and I think that's part of being our best and I think that's part of how you live in joy is we just have our intention lined up and do the best we can to serve the greater good of all because um, somewhat as a 
kind of tying it all together. As you and I have said, if we're just focusing on making, uh, thinking about a few people that we may be pleasing, um, we're not really doing um, a good job, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And are we ever not God's beloved? We're always that. Oh, my, always again, God. my spiritual belief, we're, all, we're never not that. Exactly. We forget. And you use the term, opti- you know, I use the term optimistic, O-P-T-I hyphen M-Y-S-T-I-C, as somebody who sees the world through the eyes of possibility. I don't know where that came. It, was, it probably came to me in meditation or a dream or something. But um, I think about that, that if I'm an optimistic, if I see possibility in everything, then nothing is impossible. There's nothing, I mean, yeah, there's certain things that, that haven't yet happened in my life, and they may never happen, but it doesn't mean I can't put it out there and set the intention and plant the seeds. And intention to me is not the same as a goal. You know, an intention is seeing what it is that I want, and I've come to accept that there isn't anything that I want that isn't possible in some way, that, you know, the seed is planted because it is possible that I wouldn't want something if I couldn't potentially have it. Now, not everything I want is for my highest good. So I always add that caveat. You know, I'll accept this if it's for the highest good. Yeah. And if it's not, ain't going to happen. <laughs> that's yeah. my, again, if my that's belief. not, um, hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back no more, no more, no more, no more. Yeah. Listen, it's been a uh, privilege and pleasure to have your energy and your fire and your passion on our show today. I want to remind everyone to go visit Edie's uh, website. You can find out about her blog, her different writings. Um, she is um, a multidimensional person. That would be great for you to know and be aware of. Uh, put her on your, your favorites on your website list. Edie, thank you so much for being on our show today. And I look forward to talking to you again in the near future. God bless you on Thanks. this incredible journey that we call life. Thank you. Thank you. Bless you too. Take care. All Bye. right. Thank you for tuning into The Intentional Spirit, Seeing and Being with Reverend Temple Hayes. Join us every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Central for tools and simple applications which will support you from being alive to fully living. This program is brought to you in part by First Unity at Unity Campus in St. Petersburg, Florida. To learn more about this ministry, go to www.unitycampus.org or www.templehayes.org. Like life, grief is a journey, not a destination. Whether it is loss of life, relationship, security, or simply the process of change, have you given yourself permission to begin your journey of grief? Have you yielded to the gift of grace? Join Reverend Chaz Wesley every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central on a virtual navigation from grief to grace. And explore new horizons of empowerment, significance, and support. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'll light a candle in your name. Inspiration only takes a moment. We invite you to focus your attention inward with these words from Elizabeth Searle Lamb. This is a new day. Lead your conscious mind to that still haven of your soul where your indwelling Christ opens wide the doorway of your heart. At once, mind, soul, and body, you are flooded with the light and love of God. You are lifted high above this earthly plane and filled with the radiance of spirit. Send this love and light on to those whom you hold dear so that it may uplift, heal, and comfort them. As you send this radiance on, you are filled with a new sense of God's power, and you release this power to the whole world to uplift, 
Guide and bless all people. A day's tasks await you, but God is with you, and with God's help, all shall be done perfectly. This meditative moment is brought to you by Unity. At the base of all life is the infinite wellspring of Source, and each of us has a unique way of expressing that Source as an individualized soul. Do you enjoy the company of inspiring people who are living on purpose? Do you want to live joyfully attuned to your own unique soul expression? Host Reverend Kristen Powell welcomes you to join the gathering of souls who live this way. You'll meet artists, naturalists, and other soulful expressions that will inspire you to call forth the most alive, passionate version of yourself. Get into the natural stream of your own soul by tuning into Soul Stream live every Wednesday at noon Central Time on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 